0: Welcome to Coffee and Change, I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. My next guest, Beth Banks-Cohn, is the president of ADRA Change Architects, where she helps individuals and organizations reach their full potential. Using a highly developed organizational intuition, Beth helps businesses see what others might have missed. With over 25 years of business expertise in the pharmaceutical and healthcare arena, Beth brings time in IT, sales and marketing, and operations and combines it with degrees in organizational development and human and organizational systems. She also has a certificate in positive psychology bringing a unique and proven approach to leading and managing change. Enjoy the listen.
1: My name is Beth Banks cohn obviously, and I've been working in the change space uh, since uh, since the '90s, and I oh, probably even before that. Probably, yeah, I say uh, late '80s, early uh, in the '90s. And and uh, the reason I got into it was I was actually teaching personal computer software when personal computers were just putting being put on people's desks, and I. Was fascinated by sort of the havoc that it was wreaking, right? Everybody's like, "Oh, it's such a great thing," but didn't turn out to be for some people. And so I got really interested in this whole idea of change. And uh, and because I was because I was teaching the software, it, it gave me a really great opportunity to have a lot of conversations with people who were trying to figure out how this all worked. And so that sort of was my introduction into the into change, and. At the time, change management—it was a thing, but it wasn't—it wasn't like a popular thing. And so, uh, and so, it was something that I, f- I felt I could really add value to based on my based on my experience. And uh, and so, I I worked mostly from an IT perspective because I was in the IT department. I worked mostly on implementation of systems, and uh, and I really I, I really saw. How change impacted organizations at lots of different levels. So it wasn't just the computer, but it was also did people read? You know, could people read the computer screen? And uh, you know, when they started putting it out on shop floors and manufacturing, and and so and I'm and I, so I was endlessly fascinated. And when I, uh, I uh, when I, when I started to work in change in organizations, organizational change, not just from an IT perspective, but across the board you know, I realized that, you know, adoption's adoption, whether you're adopting a new idea or a new process or a new way of doing things or thinking about things, or you're adopting a system, adoption's adoption. And there were lots of barriers to adoption. And, uh, and often organizations would say, well, eventually everybody will get on board and we'll just move forward. And it was, it was never, it was sort of never the right thing. And then, and then, and then uh, and as I was able to have more influence, being able to show how um, how the decisions that leaders make impact change in their organization and how there is that adoption or non-adoption and how that directly affects their bottom line one way or the other. And how if they if they did different things at the beginning, they'd have better outcomes at the end. There was this idea, and I still think it exists uh, among leaders, that there's like this and then a miracle occurs and then maybe it works that goes along with change and it it doesn't have to be that way and so and so you know and so that's why i've worked in i mean i've worked in change like i said since the late 80s it's it's a long time to to focus but it's it's my thing i'm i'm great at this like it's it's something that i'm really great at like i i can go into an organization I can. I can figure out what's what's holding them back and I can help them to remove the barriers. It's, it's not that hard for me. I know it's my special gift. And, and so I, I love using it for, for that reason. Uh, and, uh, and, and sadly, there's still work. So, you know, I, I have conversations today that I thought I'd never have again because I thought we learned our lesson. Yeah. And what I've realized is, is that people learn their lessons, but they didn't pass it down because it wasn't as important to them. And now we have to. We have a whole new set of leaders that have to learn the, that lesson over again.
0: Yeah, you know it's interesting um, when people have been at this as long as you have and I have. The, we see the pendulum swing both ways, right? And I think I think we're on. I might be on my third return. You're probably on your. I mean, I know it's like we see it. And to your point around people, people remember these things. Organizations do not, and organizations right. are collections of people. But it's that. Um, you know, one of the things that you talked about on a previous episode that I heard, you talked about the cognitive barriers, right? And I love your analogy that you give on the manufacturing floor, because I've also been on a number of manufacturing floors for pharmaceutical devices and, you know, uh, medicines. And I remember the first time I was in one of those large um, plants. And I thought it was so fascinating for a couple of reasons. One is, there was a process and a guideline and a compliance for every single thing, right? Everything was beeped, scanned, you couldn't stand there, you could stand here, you, you had to watch your head there, right, every little thing was, was marked out. But the piece that was completely missed was the, the sort of cultural change, the behavioral change that was gonna go along with when they put in a time motion study. Right. So it was so evident to me that all of this engineering and science had gone in and it was beautifully pristine right on the floor. And they wanted to introduce this time motion study, which included things like you said, new software, having to carry iPads around, clicking things, new cameras installed, watching body movements. The piece they never looked at was how do we have a conversation with people about how this feels how, how this how this affectively feels to be watched and monitored, and then also in real time get that data. Because prior to these people were used to getting some reports, but they were like after the fact, right? You couldn't course correct, and and you know because you got the reports a week or two later, and they'd say, hey, Bill, you know, you need to be more efficient because you're walking around this bin when you should come at it this way fine, no big deal. You try and incorporate that. But these were things that were happening real time. And they were getting alerts on said device the minute they were in the movement. And nobody had a conversation with them about like, how you respond to that? What do you do? How does that feel? And I watched it all unfold. And it reminded me of what you described, which was like, you had that conversation, like, hey, have we checked for literacy? And the answer was no. And so it reminded me of that and then the other piece I wanted to share with you I reside in the Seattle area so Boeing is a big big employer here and I don't know if you visited the the big Boeing plant where you can actually go in and tour and see no. the airplanes made Oh it's cool. fascinating as 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 you know a student and expert and uh leader in change you'd find it fascinating because one of the things they do they show you you're sort of on this um, this, uh, you know, almost like balcony that's in the middle. And on one side is the old way they made airplanes. And on the other side is the way they make airplanes today. And so on the old side, it's all bins full of bolts and very tactile, right? Just all sorts of stuff. And it's busy. And you're looking down on that sea of material. And you're like, how does anything get done? And then they take you over and they say, and this is how we do planes now. And it's little cubicles with computers and tons of open space. And they're essentially reviewing plans and because the parts are made elsewhere in South Carolina and shipped over, they snap to in the Boeing plan out here. So you can stand on this sort of, uh, it's like a balcony in the middle and look on both sides and it's a completely different experience. And you think about the culture change that had to go along with that and they're operating simultaneously, but it's like two entire different cities divided by a curtain.
1: Interesting. That's a really, that's really interesting because also like it also goes to the conative, right? The people that are building planes the old way have a certain way of instinctively taking action that draw that brings them, drives them to a, the type of place where they get to pick up the parts and put them together. Muscle driven, yeah. And, right? And then on the other side, it's more cerebral. I right? like there's cubicles and there's you know there's it's it's really it's really different. And it it it's sort of a great illustration of sometimes companies change the jobs and they expect the same people to be able to do that job in a completely different way. And it it totally backfires. And and that's a great example of that. And I, my guess is that that didn't happen. Right? No. That the people that made the planes on the on the the old way are not the people that are sitting in those cubicles Correct. because they, they would they would if they weren't self select if they weren't selected out they would have self selected out because it's totally not what they signed up for, um, but it's a it's an interesting illustration yeah
0: yeah so if you ever get the opportunity to see it I think it would be such a delightful experience for you to see because it's it is the the embodiment right the enactment of what you're talking about when it comes yeah. to architecting these changes. And that's yeah. kind of the next place I'd love to to talk about because, you know, you, you specifically mention in your work and in your company the word architect, right? Change, architect, architect, change. Yeah. And I gravitate towards that for the reason being that if I could go back and redo undergrad, I would probably major in psychology and architecture. Um, um, just, and partly because... There was a book I read years ago, um, The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand, and it changed the way that I looked at architecture and buildings. And I've never looked at a building or a structure the same. Mm -hmm. And it also is this kind of, you know, symbol for vision and change and expecting people to behave differently. And it happens all the time. We build buildings all the time. We, we, uh, build causeways and pathways. And to your point, we just expect people to be able to instinctively say, oh, well, I'm going to go this way. And one of the brilliant things we realize is kind of like when they build parks or trails, we say, hey, here's all the engineering, this should be where the path is. And then what happens, right? College campuses show this all the time. You get a footpath that just naturally gets built or foot stomped, if you will, all the way across. And then you sort of zoom out and say, "Okay, well, we thought the pathways were going to be here, but people went there." And right. things like city planning and civics, um, civil engineering, have always fascinated me because at the heart of it is human behavior.
1: Yes, absolutely. And you know, when when I the reason I I uh, I have that architect in my in in my company name, Audra Change Architects, is because is because change management to me is, is really misleading, right? First of all, you can't manage change. You can manage yourself and others through change, but you can't manage the the change, right? Because the change is, it's not, it's not what you do with it. And so from an architectural perspective, like when I, when I asked clients, when I first started out, I had a few uh, uh, clients and, and I said, you know, how would you describe what I do? And they said, Oh, you architect, like you're our architect, like you build the framework, the structure, and then we, and then we are the people that inhabit that change. And that's exactly, that's exactly what you're, what you're talking about. And it, it, it's a way of looking at change that isn't trying to manage it. Like when Mm -hmm. I first got into it, that people be, people would be like, you have to manage it. I'm like, no, 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 no. You can manage yourself and others, but the change itself has to have a framework. That, that allows you to move through it in a way that gets you to the place you want to get to. And to your point, if that path isn't working, then you got to do a different path, but it should still be within the framework of there's a park. Yeah. And, and uh, and it's, it's often a hard concept for, for people because to go back to your example of the time and motion studies, which literally makes me cringe. I know, right? Um, I'm
0: having like my skin code like jump off just right. remembering. literally makes
1: me cringe. But but this whole idea that you that you can sort of have that level of control is it'd be funny, like if it wasn't so sad. But it's it it, it is this whole idea that. We're supposed to manage, you know, we're supposed to manage the change. We're supposed to wrestle it to the ground and like make it do what we want to do. And it's it's actually not how change works. It's not how people work. You know, and people say, and, and you know, clients will say to me, Well, I, you know, I don't uh I you know, I don't I don't want to have to deal with all this people stuff. I'm like, well, then you should just not be in business because your business is made up of people. I once had a leader say to me, Why do I have to fix? Something that I didn't break because there had been a change before they got there as the leader that was so poorly handled that people were were just in in uh, in a state where they really couldn't make another change. And uh, and I said to I said to this leader, you have to fix what happened the last time before you can move forward. And she was really angry. She was like, "Why do I have to do that?" I said, "Because you're asking the same people who went through that last thing." To go through this other thing, and you can't ask them to do that without fixing it. I know you didn't break it, but you have to fix it. And we did; we fixed it. And the next change went beautifully, but there was this resistance that, like, that 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 it that the change itself happened, and that it was devoid of people. But people is at the basis of everything that we do with change. Yeah. So yeah, and I love your idea of managing and psychology, uh, majoring in psychology and and architecture because I think. I think you're right like the whole idea of how you think about about change is people are at the core this i I wish i had studied psychology like i have a phd in human and organizational systems and there's a little psychology a little sociology a little a little lots of things culture and uh but uh but sometimes i wish i had studied more psychology because at the end of the day it's it's it 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 is the thing that gets in the way the most
0: yeah. And, and it's interesting because I found myself gravitating, especially this past decade, towards areas of study that people wouldn't necessarily expect me to be in. So to your point, I ended up gravitating towards neuroscience and oh, oh, yeah, yeah. really understanding how the brain works and why. The neuroscience piece was really interesting because it wasn't just understanding the brain. It was also understanding the um hormonal and the bio uh, feedback mechanism that you learn in the body. And one of the things that I learned and I've started to sort of pull into my work is the, the body will never lie to you. The brain, however, is a pattern seeking device. So it will lie to you seven ways till Sunday. And I'm curious, like how you deal with that? Like, that's a reality that we have to face, right? This this work is not for the faint of heart. I tell that to a lot of people as well. <laughs> like what you do sounds awesome. Like I want to do that. Great, we can have that conversation. But like, you got to come with thick skin and and a really strong heart because it's yeah. not for the faint of heart. So I'm just curious your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, you know it's such a it's such a great point. It, it you know when um, when I studied positive psychology, a lot of the basis of positive psychology comes from this whole idea of the intersection of neuroscience and the brain and, and the body and everything else. And I, I totally agree. And one of the things that I always talk about in my work is, is, is it's, you're going to get a physical sensation of some kind if something's not right. And then what do you do with that? Yeah. Right. And, uh, and, and so, and some of it is like, where, where is it coming from? Is that because because there's a feeling like, an a, is there an affective part of what you're doing that's not sitting right? Is it cognitive? Is there, is it, is it conative? Is it part of that instinctive part of your brain? And so, and so it's, 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 it's really important and a little deep for most people.
0: Yeah, it is. So I,
1: I will say that.
0: You take people well, out of their comfort zone real right, quick.
1: Right, right. <laughs> Just the word, neuroscience. You're little, people are like, what, what? Uh, No. And, uh, but I do, I do think the way that I talk about it is because I talk about the three parts of the mind a lot, Mm -hmm. which comes from Kathy Colby. I mean, it's not only Kathy Colby, but she's the one that sort of helped me understand how it all fits together. But I do think, I do think this whole idea of the neural pathways, right? And the, and that, and that you were, you're going to keep going down that pathway because it's comfortable. And when you have to do something different, it creates a new pathway, but it's a little painful, And that to help people understand that it is, it is going to feel not right. Like, and there's a difference between feeling not right and going ahead anyway, because it's the new way of doing it and feeling not right because you're in danger. Mm -hmm. And people don't always differentiate. They're like, well, it doesn't feel right. So I don't, I don't want to do it. Well, okay. So then that's, so then that's where the conversation starts. Right. And so when I work with leaders and organizations about, about, change and we talk about sort of how is this going to show up for people like what's what's different and and how is it how is it going to manifest in are people going to are people going to have to do something physically different are they going to have to think in a different way and then we talk about neural pathways and and how and how long it takes and how much effort it's going to take right if you've been on a job for 40 years and you're doing the same thing every day and somebody comes in and says, we're going to do a time and motion study and now we're going to tell you every five seconds that you walked around the bin instead of walking through the bin, like, first of all, why would you ever do that? And second of all, but second of all, like, what is that going to do to them and what level of discomfort and how long is it going to take them to get used to the new thing? Because sometimes companies have this idea that, oh, they're just going to implement it on day one. Everybody's going to act the right way. And yeah. it doesn't work that way at all. Like I I always say, you tell me what happens on day one.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's when I'm interested. It's like, right.
1: You tell me what happens like, on day one. I want you to lead me through what's going to happen. And then when they start saying, like they're telling me what's going to happen on day 40, right? I'm like, no, 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 that's day 40. Day what's going to happen on day one? Yeah. And it changes the conversation. Like I do, a, I do scenario planning as part of my framework and change framework. And I make them tell me how the jobs are going to change yeah. and how it's going to look on day one and how it's going to look on day 40. Mm-hmm. Because it's going to, it's A, it's going to look really different. And B, 40 days is a long time. Yeah. And you have to be willing to take a hit in some way. And yes, there's ways to make it so that your productivity doesn't go down in that dramatically, but you have to do a lot more prep if you want day one to look like day 40 because it it can be done, but you have to do a lot more work up yeah, front and not, not everyone wants to do
0: that. Yeah, they want to talk about future state and they want yeah. to talk about current state, but rarely do we want to talk about messy middle state.
1: That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when I think about agile, Always mm-hmm. makes me laugh. I, I know. <laughs> people are like, oh, are you doing agile change management? I'm like, I always do agile change management. Like, right. we didn't call it that. We just called it change management. But, but, but it's like the the agile piece of it is if if you're doing it wrong, which often at the corporate at the corporate not on the shop floor level, not in the IT department level you're doing it wrong. It's you've basically sent people into the state of not actually knowing what the hell they're doing, like for a really long time. So yeah, to you, it looks like, Oh, we're doing a sprint and we're doing a sprint. and We're doing a sprint. But to other people, it looks like, Oh my God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how I'm supposed to do it. I feel terrible. I'm not successful. I'm not, there's so many bad things that happen when you're trying to apply a really great IT principle to not IT stuff. Yeah. And, uh, but it's, but the whole idea of agile change management, to me, agile change management is we create a plan, we start working the plan, the plan's not working, we know it's not working, because we're getting feedback all the time, because we put that mechanism into place. And so we make a change based on it. And then and then we see if it's working. And if it's working, we leave it. And we concentrate on something else that might not be working. And we, so we fix it all along the way. But we go in with a fully baked plan. Yeah. Like I once talked to not that long ago, I talked to someone and said, Oh, well, we do, we do agile. We're we're changing the we're changing the performance management system, but we're doing it agile. So we're just we're just we're just doing a little piece of it. I'm like, you don't have a plan for the whole performance management system. Like, do you do you understand like what that does to people? Mm-hmm. And I'll just say this. This is what I, I I didn't do work on it, so I could say whatever I wanted, but I was like, I'll just say this like, don't ever mess with people's paychecks.
0: No rule. Number one
1: rule. Number one. And the fact that, and, but she said to me, Oh no, we're just, it'll take a few years. We'll, we'll figure it out. I'm like, Oh, I'm not along for
0: that ride. Mm -mm. Yikes. You know, the agile stuff is fascinating to me. I wrote a, I wrote a white paper on this years ago. Um, and it was, you know, again, hot topic buzzword going around, you know, and I think what I essentially said was, uh, don't let Agile be an excuse to not plan. And everybody sort of attacked me and said, how could you say that? It's, And I said, because I have evidence to show <laughs> that it's this convenient excuse for people not to plan. Oh, well, you know, we're on sprints and we'll figure it out. We've got a product roadmap and we got a backlog and it's all going to change anyway. So let's just not think that far into the future. And the challenge I kept saying was, but you expect your employees to envision themselves in said future, but you're not giving them any structure, any insight, any preview. You're just telling them everything's thrown up in the air and where it lands, it lands and you'll be fine. We assure you. And it was maddening. It was crazy making. Yes. Yes, absolutely.
1: And you're right. It, it is, it is this whole idea that you don't have to plan if you're doing agile. It's like a weird, which I don't understand at all coming out of the IT world. Um, but I but I also think like what you what you said like about this whole idea that you want people to envision it the future but you can't even show them what it looks like. there are people in the world who would who love agile because it's always changing. there's always a little risk, there's always a little uncertainty it never is wholly baked they love it but there's a lot of other people in the world who literally that amount of stress if it doesn't send them to the hospital i'd be shocked
0: yeah. because
1: it's it's so against their you know some people are are hardwired to to avoid risk and uncertainty and it, and when you're in a world that's always uncertain it's it's really hard it's really hard you have to you have to find your certainty in other things, and that's a process. And and you and most people don't figure it out. Like you should be telling people, if if you're hardwired for for seeking risk, seeking uh, um, to alleviate risk and uncertainty or avoid risk and uncertainty, this is going to feel terrible to you. Let's figure out how to find you that that stability so that you can feel comfortable as we go through this very uncertain process and then for the people that are loving risk and uncertainty, then it's great for them. So, but it's, it's, uh, I think you're exactly right. and I'm surprised. I'm surprised people didn't stop and like think about what you said, because, because if they've done anything with agile and they know that it can go off the rails, like, why would they, why would they ever think, I mean, it is, it's, and it, and by the way, going back to my example, that was their excuse for not planning. Yes. Mm-hmm. They they didn't have a plan. I'm mm-hmm. like, how do you not have a plan? And they're like, no, no, no we're just going to let it evolve. I'm like, oh,
0: God. Well, and I think what's really interesting also, and again, this was, I'd have to go back and look at when I wrote this, but it might've been like, it might've been like 2015, 2016. So it's still, you know, it's it was still early kind of in that in that mm-hmm. arc, right? So there were probably enough people to say, that I was an outlier. Now going back to read it, I, I think it would be like reading the Oracle, you know, you'd be like you predicted right. it all. But sure. um, okay. the, the other thing that I found, which was really fascinating was over the course of years thereafter, product owners and product managers, right? These were, these were new roles, new terms that were sort of infused into the ecosystem of um, not only IT, but also we saw financial services, we saw, you know, pharmaceutical companies, biotech, they all just jumped on the bandwagon of product owners and product managers. What I learned was that product owners, quickly, I became their best friend. Now, secretly, I became their best friend. And the reason I say that is because, to your point, there were a lot of people who took these roles as product owners because they were maybe the senior most subject matter expert on said tool or ERP or, you know, cloud system, you name it, right? And they were deputized or sort of canonized to be that product owner. And they thought, well, great, this is wonderful opportunity for me, job security. But secretly, behind the scenes, they would call me and say, I don't know how to deal with this much uncertainty. Like, we need to come up with a change plan to address the amount of anxiety that is generated because of the... And the, the term we were using at the time was... Um, wagile or fragile. So it was like waterfall agile or fragile. Like we would, because everybody said they wanted it one way and they held on to these these anchor ways and said, oh, we're going to sort of make this Frankenstein thing and we're going to do it that way. And it further made people miserable. And so I would have these backdoor conversations with product owners and product managers and they'd say, how can we make this less painful for them and for their team? And I quickly became their best friend and coached many of them. And they became kind of juniors in change, right? Juniors and change leads. Um, and it was those partnerships that I had with those people all in secret that made the project successful. Because as you know, we're not in this work to be out front. If you're looking for glory, you're in the wrong line of work. <laughs> That's true. So I was just curious your thoughts on that from the product management product. I mean, it's, again, it's still very, um, it's much more popular now than it was then. Yeah. But I'm curious if you're seeing those similar traits and behaviors and partnerships building.
1: Yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't, uh, I don't have that. I'm not an internal person, right? So I don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. When I was an internal person and I did change, I had a lot of conversations like that. <laughs> not just about product management. It was just about. We're we're about to do this thing, and we we know it's going to it put a lot of uncertainty into the process, and we know it's going to change a lot of things for people. And although on the this was my this was a big conversation I used to have. On the surface, this looks really positive, but it's not positive for everybody, right? And so, uh, so then you know, help me figure out how we're gonna how we're gonna do that and yeah. uh, how we're gonna mitigate all of that. And uh, and I worked a lot with sales forces yeah, by virtue of sales forces also with marketing around just just that whole idea that sales forces hate uncertainty, right? Mm-hmm. They, and it's interesting because most of them sort of love it, but they don't love it when it comes to when they're making money because you don't want to fool with people's paychecks. Um, And so uh, they would get very risk averse when it came to when it came to um, was this going to really affect their affect their pay. And 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 it is this whole idea that if you're going to create that much chaos, you you have to have a plan about how you're going to mitigate the chaos. There's there's no question about it. Because and if you don't, by the way, then you're just you're just naive. And I think about today. You know, organizations are, you know, everybody wants to make changes. And I talked to somebody today and they said, My team is exhausted. Like they have change fatigue. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I said, you know, I, I totally get it. And so, and so the antidote to change fatigue is to put more stability in their in their lives. It doesn't have to be what you're trying to change. Like that doesn't have to be the stable part, but you have to look at the whole person and say, where can we have stability? Where can we have places for people to feel like they have control that they have that they, they aren't taking risks, that they' that they're getting up and going into work and they know what they're supposed to be doing and, and they envision themselves being part of the solution, even though we're going to change this other thing because, because you're only thinking about the change, you can't only think about the change. you have to think about the whole person, the context. I always I talk a lot about context. Mm-hmm. and that's what you're that to me is what you're saying when you talk when you, product managers they're they're like they're they're needing more than just that discrete thing that they're trying to change it's the context into which they're introducing it and how can they manage the whole system and right. each whole person as opposed to just that one thing but there are many leaders who just want to do that they just want to they just want to do that one thing well mostly those leaders also just want people to shut up and get back to work but
0: Right. Well and I think um, the context that's not work either. Yeah. And the context piece is so important too. I mean, I, I do I I think as you described that, I'm now remembering that's exactly what I was doing with them was I was telling them about the waters, right, the tides in the organization and other parts of of the business so that they were not necessarily taken by surprise or so that they could make an informed decision and um, provide some stability and certainty, right? Um and I remember at one point, you know, in, my, in one of my previous organizations, they called me the millennial whisperer because they were trying to, you know, motivate a portion of the workforce and it wasn't, it wasn't working, right, from leader to group of, of new millennials at the time. And they were like, why aren't they understanding the words that are coming out of my mouth? <laughs> and I said, well... I think what we're missing here is a great dose of context and the why and connecting the dots and the story. We were missing the story. And, and a few people said, I don't need to be storytelling. I just need to tell them. I said, okay, well, how about you let me go in? And, um, and I became this bridge, right? I became this sort of talker, like between the two. And what was really fascinating was then leaders would look and say, well, they're doing what they're doing, what I want them to do. And I said, yeah they're capable of it. Absolutely. They're capable of it. They just needed a little more context and they wanted to hear your perspective from where you sat and what you cared about and why this was important to you and connect those dots. And some leaders, you know, said, I'm not, I'm not in the business of sharing that. Okay, fine. Um, how about I do that for you? We get the same outcome. Um, And so it was really fascinating to sort of see that emerge over time. Um, And I mean, I'm I'm grateful, because again, to your point, right, we're seeing pendulum swings both ways. And what's in the middle of those pendulum swings are the exact characteristics, capabilities, and capacity we're talking about that we bring no matter the challenge, right?
1: Yes. You know, it it is one thing I have to say that this work really does prepare you for that, right? It prepares you because because at some point you've seen a lot, and I I never say I've seen everything because every time something new comes up, um, but I do think I do think we've seen a lot, and I think I think I love your example of being the millennial whisperer, right? Because I do think how we approach people has had to change as the people have changed, right? So we used to say from a cognitive perspective, oh, we're just going to tell them the what. Like what we're doing, we have to tell them, we have to tell them again, then we have to train them. Like that's all cognitive. You can't get away with that anymore because you, not only do you have to tell them the why you have to give them a chance to evaluate it for themselves. Like it's not just enough to, to your point about, you know, telling the, the perspective of the leader, but they, they want to know why you didn't choose the other thing.
0: Yeah. They want to know the why and the why not. Right.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. The why and the why not. Exactly. And and they want to evaluate it and they want to say, well, okay, so I agree or not agree. You know, I've written for a long time about um, the different kinds of um, resistance to change. And there's one where they don't agree with you and they have really good points, right? They're resisting the change for really good reasons because the way that they look at it is they think you should have gone the other way. Mm-hmm. And the only way to get that person on board is to is to really have a good conversation and allow them to see that yes you've considered all these things but you've decided to go this direction and that's as a leader that's your job that's your role yeah. and they may not agree with it but at least you've given them the courtesy of understanding it more and more that used to be like one category more and more that's the category that especially millennials they're mm-hmm. they're not going to follow you blindly and and by the way thank god right? right they're they're like giving voice to all the things that we wished we could have given voice to when we were young in our careers and and i think it's i think it's so important that we need to realize that people evolve and the way that we deal with people has to evolve like you can't you can't people are not going to shut up and get back to work and you can want that but people are going to vote with their feet and people vote with their feet a lot more often today than they used to. And we see that even with the companies that made people come back in the office and people just started resigning because they're not coming back in the office because you, you've not even given them one compelling reason because they've been working at home for so long and there's no reason in their mind. And you've not gotten them to that evaluation stage where they can say, this is the why and this is the why not. And okay, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I understand where you're coming from.
0: It's okay, so I'll show up.
1: You just told them they have to go back in the office. People were like, nah, I opt out. I'm going somewhere mm-hmm. else.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it reminds me, one of the <laughs> mic drop moments that I heard in my career from a millennial speaking to someone who was probably Gen X. I could I could probably put them in that category. Um, you know, said Gen X leader is, is quite, vocally yelling at millennial and saying, you have to do it this way, because I'm telling you, you have to do it this way. And this happened to be in the financial services sector. And on an open mic, you know, on a, on a, on a Zoom meeting, this uh, smart, driven millennial said, oh, right, so I have to take the same steps that led us into the 2008 financial crisis? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> and- <laughs> And then that person continued to say, we're in this mess because of you. So pardon me while I take a different route. And good for them. I was applauding that that person because they were right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, there's, there's no question about it. There's no question about it. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I think, I think the pandemic and the millennials have really changed the game in a good way. And I think, uh, I think, I think companies are going to have to really look at how they change in new and different ways. Like I have more conversations today about this whole idea of the three parts of the mind and the cognitive and the affective and the conative than I've ever had before with people actually being interested in talking about it because they're not having success with the old ways and I think it's I think the I think the pandemic finally showed them that they really do need to change the way that they think about things. And, uh, and it's refreshing. I mean, it's really refreshing. I mean, listen, I still have those conversations that make me just want to take a gun to my head, but, you know, as a consultant, who's been in my own business for almost 20 years, I, I don't have to work with everybody
0: anymore. No, you don't. You get to say, no, thank you." you.
1: Yeah. And as I used to say, when I first started out, I'd rather eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches three times a day than work with that person. And that, and, and that's also personality. Like I know that's me. Like I know, I know why I'm, you know, that I know that it's part of my personality, but I, I do think, I do think that, I do think that people that are evolving to your point, going back to talking about the brain and neuroscience, people that are evolving are the people that are going to survive this and thrive and thrive in this new, this new normal, so to speak, I call it totally. the new abnormal, but it's the, yeah. it, it's the new, it's the way we are. And, and, uh, and there's no. There's no reason not to, and it's part of that change. It's part of that evolution. And if you really want to get yourself out of the, the the terrible middle until you get to the, like where you're really wanting to go, uh, if you're if you're inspired enough to do that, you really have to do have to look at things differently. The old ways aren't going to work.
0: Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah, what
1: got you to the 2008 financial crisis isn't going to get you out of it. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, that I, was think- right.
1: Are they still employed? Because.
0: They of- have since moved on. Um, no, they—they, yeah. they, you know, they weren't impacted by that statement. But okay. they chose, right to your point, they chose to vote with their feet. Yeah. Um, they weren't seeing enough change in the financial services sector, and they chose to go somewhere else, uh, where they can make that change uh, stick and land and be impactful in people's lives. And good for them.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I love that people vote with their feet now, because I mean, I grew up in a time where you sucked it up and went back to work. Yeah. And I, it's one of the reasons, um, I stayed in this work for so long because I felt like I needed, I felt like people, employees needed an advocate for doing it the right way. And as an internal, as an internal person that did change, I was that advocate. And I really stayed in it for that. And then, and then when, uh, when my job was eliminated, because, you know, you should always eliminate your senior change person's job when you're making massive change, right? So they eliminated my, they were merging two companies together, they eliminated my position. And, and, uh, and I thought, okay, well, I can't be an internal advocate, but I can still get to leaders to be an advocate for people that I don't know, they're not my, they're not my fellow employees. But because, because they really people really do need an advocate for having change be done the right way. And we're not doing it the right way enough for people, for them not to need people like
0: you and me. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's music to my ears and music to many of my peers ears and those that listen to this podcast. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, Before I let you go, I would love for you to share where people can get in touch with you, um, connect with you. Obviously you've got your own business, um, and want to make sure that people can reach out. Cause I have a feeling a lot of people will listen to this and be like, yes, finally. <laughs> Somebody speaking <it laughs> up.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, so of course I'm on LinkedIn, Beth Banks, PhD. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I think I'm the only Beth Banks PhD. So I think that'll be easy. And then also people can email me, uh, just put heard you on the pot, you know, heard you on coffee and change or heard you on Bill's podcast. Um, in the subject. So I'll I'll definitely pay attention to it. And my email address is Beth, B-E-T-H at dot com A-D-R-A change.com.
0: One word. Awesome. Thank you so much, Beth. This was a great conversation. It reminds me of the importance of each one of us that do this work uh, is a quiet rebel. And thank goodness we are.
1: Yes. I totally agree. And I love that. I'm going to use that now. Quiet rebel. Please do. I love it. Yeah.
0: That's, that's that's how I sometimes describe it. Again, not for the faint of heart, but we are each a quiet rebel. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You bet. Have a good one. You too.